Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be chatting with Dr. Jeffrey Scott from Hopkins University. Um, Dr. Scott is a Mohs surgeon assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. And uh, I thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. Now, uh, today we're going to be talking about an article uh, that you published in JAMA Dermatology titled Characteristics of State and Federal Malpractice Litigation of Medical Liability Claims for Keratinocyte Carcinoma. And before we get into the details of the actual article, uh, I want to learn more about what, what triggered you to go down this research path. Uh, because it's not something we see that often, and at the same time, I think it's incredibly important to our specialty. So what's the background on this paper? Sure. So we had, we had come across um, a seminal study published by a group at Harvard in the New England Journal of Medicine back in 2011 that looked at medical litigation amongst all specialists. And dermatologists, reassuringly, were at the lowest end for being litigated. And when the decisions were decided in favor of plaintiffs against dermatologists, the payments uh, were the lowest amongst all specialties. But when we examined the literature on medical litigation, we realized that there were very few studies that looked at um, specific dermatologic conditions. There was one study that examined melanoma litigation, and there was one study that involved uh, litigation against Mohs surgeons specifically. So we wanted to look at dermatologic condition that is highly prevalent. So we chose to examine keratinocyte carcinoma and, again, look at the the characteristics of medical litigation against physicians uh, in the care of patients with keratinocyte carcinoma. Got it. And obviously, needless to say, there's a huge um, applicability of of that topic to to us being on the the Mohs Surgery podcast. And one has to wonder, uh, I'm not aware of any data on it, what the trend will be in dermatology going forward as we uh, start to have a greater emphasis on both uh, surgical procedures and cosmetic procedures. But as it relates to uh, the treatment of keratinocyte carcinomas, what were the the key findings that, that you all um, found? Sure. So uh, we chose to, to find these cases through um, a legal academic database we had access to through our institution called LexisNexis. It kind of had like source files uh, source material for all appellate, state, and federal cases over the past uh, 40 years, from 1968 to 2018. So we, we examined this database and looked for litigation involving keratinocyte carcinoma, and we found 83 cases with extensive source material that we could review and kind of analyze. We found four major findings. Um, the first was that the defendants in the cases represented a lot of specialties, but the vast majority were general dermatologists. 
most surgeons only represented 5% of all the defendants in these cases. 75% of the cases, so the vast majority of cases, were decided in favor of the defendant. And more of these cases in recent years were decided in favor of the defendant. So in our changing healthcare landscape and in, in litigation landscape, it seems like more and more of the cases uh, over the past years are being decided in favor of the defendants. Secondly, lawsuits most commonly related to a couple of things. Uh, one was the failure to perform a biopsy and diagnose the keratinocyte carcinoma. Another was the failure to obtain informed consent for a procedure. Uh, another was misdiagnosis. And then the last was delay to treatment. Number three, the most common reason for decisions, court decisions in favor of either the plaintiff or the defendant in these cases was either meeting or not meeting standard of care. So it seemed like the judges in the courts looked for whether or not a standard of care was either violated or, or met before making their decision. And then number four was in the cases that were decided in favor of the plaintiff, the payments were quite high to the plaintiffs, uh, but they were highest for non-derm specialties. So podiatry, OBGYN, and pathology had some of the highest payments, uh, and the lowest payments were actually for general dermatologists and plastic surgeons, uh, which I think can also be reassuring for our field. And so to, to really have any legal case, just based on my reading, then you have to, as a patient, A, demonstrate that you had substandard care. And that that substandard care then resulted in a injury to the body. And only if you meet those criteria do you even have a case for litigation. And the burden of proof is really on the patient in these instances. That's exactly, exactly correct. Interesting. Now, one of the things that's interesting, and I imagine um, you have looked into this or, or have found no way around it, is that when we're using these academic uh, legal databases, we are essentially restricted to cases that happen on a federal or a state level, and we don't really get a good sense of what happens on a, on a district level. Now, from, from your reading and your knowledge, is what we see on the state level fairly representative of what happens uh, on the greater sort of county district level, or um, is there reason to believe that they're not necessarily the same type of trials? They may not be the same type of trials. And I think this is one of the primary limitations of our work here. Uh, so most, med in general, most medical malpractice cases, over, over 90%, are resolved before trial even happens. And our study only included, as you mentioned, cases that went to an appellate state or federal level. So it had to kind of get past the local district courts and then go to a higher level for a, what they, 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 they describe it as decisions that would lead to a precedent for future judges to follow. So cases handled like without a court, out of court settlements and cases that underwent third party arbitration and cases that were handled just at the district level, we couldn't capture with this database. So we were looking at a, a select sample of cases and there, there definitely is the possibility that there was bias in the cases that we examined compared to all types of cases that would, um, involve this topic? It's, it's always interesting. Um, you know, we're both relatively uh, recent out of fellowship. And when you look at the most common causes of um, lawsuits in, in your study and really corroborated by the uh, past studies, you're looking at 
things that are relatively human. Uh, you're looking at misdiagnosis, failure to perform a biopsy, incorrect diagnosis, delay in treatment. How do you, as, as you go about your, your daily activities and engage with your patients, think about these sort of very common concepts? I'm, I've certainly misdiagnosed a basal cell before. How, how, do you, how has this shaped your practice pattern going forward based on your findings? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So to start off with your question about the misdiagnosis, I think there's two things that I had take home from after doing this research. Uh, one is to really watch out for things like anchoring bias, where you are anchored to a diagnosis. I think if patients present with complaints that aren't responding to um, standard therapy, or they present with complaints uh, that don't quite match up with what you're seeing, um, you should reconsider your differential diagnosis early and often and try not to anchor on a single diagnosis. Remain open. Secondly, in regards to the delay in treatment, reason for litigation, I think communication is key. So in our increasingly multidisciplinary and collaborative approach to care, communication is key with other uh, specialists, with the family, with the patient, and kind of looping everyone in with what the expectations are for treatment and what the expectations are for the timeline of treatment um, so that everyone is kind of on the same page. Agreed. And I think that's what, you know, no matter what the study, you will ultimately find some comment about the, the importance of communication. And we have study upon study that says that with good communication and good rapport with your patients, uh, it's rarely the genuine or sincere mistake or medical or error that causes uh, the lawsuit. One of the things you just mentioned was um, assessing for anchoring bias or asking yourself whether you're too focused or too locked into one pattern of thinking or one diagnosis. And with that in mind, I just want to um, review for our readers a, a paper that came out just a little bit before yours titled Characteristics of Medical Liability Claims Against Dermatologists from 1991 to uh, 2015. And that was also in JAMA Dermatology. And while it looked at more comprehensively all of dermatologists and not diagnosis-specific, we find a, a great table that sort of highlights safeguards to minimize liability. And as you've already said, it's things like establishing a strong rapport with each patient, patient-centered communication, not being rushed, having a thorough history to help avoid misdiagnosis, the anchoring bias, as you, as you mentioned. And... Um, I encourage all of our readers who, who have an interest in this topic to go back, pull up that article, and, and review some of these things. Um, in some of the past studies that dealt more specifically with Mohs surgeons, informed consent and failure to provide informed consent was a fairly common theme to litigation. Can you talk about your current way of, of consenting patients, realizing that it's happening within the confines of what your academic medical center is letting you do for patient consent. How are you currently consenting your patients on average most day? Sure. So, you know, it's hard, right? It's hard to provide full informed consent and give patients and, and allow and, and not overwhelm patients with the number of possibilities available. So my typical, my typical kind of informed consent procedure is I review, I review the type of skin cancer the patient has 
and what the natural history of that cancer would be if no treatment was performed. So just just observation. And I kind of I think it's an important fact to kind of start with because it kind of anchors the patient on one end of the spectrum, what would happen if I did nothing to this tumor. And then I moved through some of the non-surgical options available to the patient. And then I moved through some of the non-MOS surgical options um, that would be available to the patient. And I kind of highlight relatively briefly, but also somewhat comprehensively, the benefits and risks of each and the alternatives. Um, And then I, I usually end with what my recommendation would be for treatment. So if it's a Mohs appropriate case, I'll end with Mohs surgery, and I'll explain the positives and negatives of Mohs surgery. And then after that, I, I try to get a sense from the patient kind of what they're thinking and what their thoughts are. And I always try to engage the family who may be in the room. Find the more you engage the family in these discussions, the easier it is to pro- progress through them and the better the relation, relationship is throughout the rest of the day. And then because I've presented it kind of on, on one end of the spectrum from observation to one end of the spectrum to what I would recommend, it kind of gives the patient their, the, the ability to, to choose what treatment they want, but also shows as their treating physician what I would recommend. And uh, Jeff, how do you um, document that? Or what's your uh, documentation procedure? I've worked at both institutions where I was able to basically add in in pen to a paper consent form, which we both sign. And I've also encountered the um, electronic signature pad that basically just captures a signature for something visible on on a screen for for a brief period of time. What how are you documenting your consent? And what do you think is the the best way to document consent, realizing that it's not always up to you as the provider? We document our consents with written signature. It works well. We scan scan that into the chart afterwards, and it seems to work pretty well at, for for us. I also want to add that I I try to provide informed consent on the the repair options specifically. So you know, once we settle on a treatment option, so let's say it's most surgery, I think a critical component of that informed consent to them deciding to undergo most surgery is to understand the at least in generalities, the, the repair options available, what that's going to mean for their life in the, in the following, you know, one to, to six months. And I think um, that, that ends up being one of the things that I struggle with the most. And w- without being paternalistic, it's that concept of something as potentially complex as nose reconstruction, where really nobody who who hasn't seen it, experienced it, or had a family member with it, has any sort of frame of reference for the conversation that you're having. And so I, I find that part of my consent process, especially as you're talking about larger defects, potentially staged procedures, um, really being being anchored by by drawings or photographs, because I find it's the only way I can really emphasize to my patients what it is that they um, may be consenting to, right? So it's way more than just signing a written consent for most surgery, nose, forward flap reconstruction. Um, w- would you agree there? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, I think a key component of informed consent, as you touched on, is the patient's understanding of what's, of what's going on. And um, as soon as you've lost the patient with, com- with complex 
descriptions of repair options, you've kind of lost that you've lost them in their ability to provide their informed consent. So you need to present it in a way that's understandable to them and and not to not um, extraordinarily complex. One of the things um, that I found most interesting in your paper was the fact that there's been this trend where um, more verdicts were were won by defendants, i.e., the accused physician, in recent years than were won by plaintiffs. Do you do you see, or did you come in your reading across this trend that maybe with either improved communication, improved consent, or decreased payout settlements? There's been a, uh, a a trend there, or or what do you make of that um, that trend that you comment on in the paper? Yeah, so the trend the trend that more defendants more decisions are being rendered in favor of the defendant over time is is very interesting. I think there's probably three three factors at play. Definitely, quality improvement interventions, particularly in in large systems have improved communication between providers and patients, but also reduced medical errors. So things like checklists and timeouts and use of um, an EMR are very helpful. We also know that secondly, there, there is a net reduction in paid claims over time, not just, for derma- not just for all specialists, but also for dermatologists. So, you know, the, the payouts are less now than they, than they used to, and that trend is, de- is decreasing. So that parallels kind of what we're seeing with more decisions being awarded to the defendant. Uh, and then lastly, it's interesting because, you know, it could reflect upon, reflect upon more defensive medicine potentially that's being, that's being practiced nowadays in this, more, in this environment that's more prone to litigation. So, you know, if, if one of the key reasons for litigation is misdiagnosis or failure to diagnose, one way that that would be reduced would be to biopsy more lesions and to biopsy the same lesion more times than you typically would in the past, or, or do practice more defensive medicine to at least mitigate the fact that you're trying, the, the fact that you don't diagnose the correct lesion or you, you misdiagnose it. And then we're sort of right back where we started in terms of, um, of course, increasing uh, healthcare costs and, um, and defensive medicine. Um, I, I want to ask you a couple questions about papers I've come across in literature and that you've probably come across in your um, composition of your introductions and discussion, one of which was an 06 survey of Mohs surgeons, and this was published in Dermatologic Sur- uh, Surgery, and ultimately ended up with 300 responses, which is about a 50% response rate. And interestingly, at that time, about 11% of ACMS members had been sued. And I'll just share the, the numbers with you. Uh, the most common, it was actually wrong site surgery, which occurred in 14% of cases, uh, followed by functional outcomes, post-procedure complications, cosmetic outcomes, and tumor recurrence down the road. As specifically, as we talk about wrong site surgery, you've thrown in their checklists and, and your EMR. What do you have in place at your institution to avoid wrong site surgery? That's an excellent question. So we're, we're just working now to kind of standardize our checklist for site confirmation. So I, I typically go with, a, a when possible, a, a three-sided approach. So I start with, there's a checklist for site confirmation. And the first, the first check is, does the, the laterality in the anatomical location that the patient's 
um, that we've we've marked match the pathology requisition, uh, paying close attention to laterality. Um, so it has to the pathology the pathology rec has to the location on that has to be in the same vicinity as what we've we've marked and the patient says is the site. Number two is a is a photo. So we pull up the photos uh, on our large large screens on the computers in the room. We don't print our photos. We just have them in the computers in each patient's room. So as as we're marking or as we're confirming the mark, we are looking at the computer and are looking at the photo. And then number three, if possible, we we try to hand the patient a, a mirror to point out where the biopsy was performed. And if it's on a site that they can't see, we try to we try to involve a family family member to to help us uh, and, see, and and kind of confirm from their end where they remember the procedure being done. And I think the best scenario is always when three of those, all three of them are satisfied. You know, sometimes there's no photo or sometimes the photo is poor quality. And then sometimes the patient's by themselves and they can't, they can't locate the spot. So there's always some, there's some wiggle room there. But in general, you know, if, if in, a, in an ideal world, all three of those check marks would be, um, would be checked for each patient before the first layer was taken to confirm the correct site. And and I think it's absolutely invaluable, and we have a very similar approach. But um, especially with the photo, if you consider that in some of the studies back now ten years ago, twenty ten, without a photo, interestingly, patients will identify the incorrect biopsy site about sixteen percent of the time. Physicians up to five point nine percent, and then overlapping, both patient and physician are wrong up to 4.4% of the time. So I think it just goes to show that that three-prong approach is invaluable. And occasionally I'll have uh, referring providers who send me um, triangulations with distances from from fixed anatomic landmarks. But uh, I'm sure you'll agree that really nothing beats a high-quality photo that shows you some anatomic landmarks in the vicinity. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I think and I think in terms of, of protecting ourselves as most surgeons, having a low threshold for not performing surgery, I think that the risk of, of performing a wrong site surgery is so, is so high that if we're not confident that we have the correct spot or just something doesn't feel right, we should always postpone and try to gather more data before we, before we proceed. Absolutely. I absolutely agree with you. One of the things that... Um... I, I came across as I, I was sort of looking for tabloid Mohs surgery lawsuits. And fortunately, there are very few sort of shocking lawsuits involving Mohs surgery. Oftentimes, when it gets to the sort of shocking end of, of uh, malpractice and litigation, you're dealing with things like Medicare fraud, which is not what I want to talk about today. But I do think there's this interesting trend that we have now in terms of transparency as physicians and as the Mohs College with the Improving Wisely initiative, because I think that has the potential to be a whole future wave of litigation because data on how many stages a, a physician uses on average or how many non-head and neck Mohs cases or low-risk Mohs cases a physician treats on average or the complexity of reconstructions done by a, a physician on average are all relatively easily publicly available. Do you see that data becoming the target of litigation in the future? That's a tough, that's a tough question. Potentially in, in other realms, as you touched upon. But I think in terms of patient, you know, I'm no lawyer, so I can't really speak to this in, in 
that much depth. But I think if a patient's going to file a malpractice lawsuit against a provider, it has to be based on an event where substandard care was delivered and that led to an injury. You know, other additional data available about quality metrics for the surgeon could be used in the lawsuit. But uh, I think the, the like the foundation of that lawsuit still needs to be on the plaintiff establishing those those three things. The defendant had a burden of care, that substandard care was delivered, and that the substandard care resulted in injury. So I wanted to comment quickly on transparency. And you're absolutely right. I think transparency is, is just key with patient-physician relationships because we know very clearly that disclosing medical errors that we make, and we're, we're all going to make medical errors, really where you run into problems, it seems like in the literature, is when you withhold those. So if you disclose your medical errors honestly and promptly and do so in a very transparent, clear fashion for the patient and their family, that goes a long way to uh, maintaining that relationship and, and hopefully preventing any potential lawsuit. I agree. And I think that pa patients are always very surprised or impressed if that kind of transparency can uh, occur. And it really has the power to transform a potentially negative emotion or negative experience into a relatively positive one, especially since fortunately the majority of our, our errors are not life-threatening or, or devastating in nature. Now, Jeff, are there any other topics as we start to wrap up here with regard to malpractice litigation or how you improve quality in your own practice that you want to share with the audience? So there's two areas that I kind of wanted to touch on. One is with regards to informed consent, and then one is a future area of research, which I'm particularly interested in. Okay. The first is in terms of informed consent. So um, I think another key with informed consent is, and this was highlighted in the survey study you mentioned earlier, um, amongst the most college members who had experienced litigation. Uh, but we make, it very, we make it very clear in our informed consent document and we tend to, I tend to circle it actually before the patient signs that the cure rate for most surgery is not 100%, although close. So I think it's important that patients realize that the surgery they're having done, if it's Mohs surgery, is the standard of care for a lot of lesions and it's the best treatment we have available with 100% margin control. But that doesn't mean that the cure rate is 100%, which I think really helps protect you moving forward if there is a recurrence and there's a bad outcome from that recurrence? So I was just going to say it's, um, it's one of the, the almost the curses of, of Mohs surgery because very few treatments, especially in the oncologic realm, uh, in the literature would, would dream of, of being able to, to quote patients 97, 98, 99% uh, cure rates or 1% or to 3% recurrence rates. So it's, it's almost where the, the, the general understanding of Mohs has become good enough that people really expect it to have that highest cure rate. Yeah. But it's, as you said, so helpful to put that into the perspective of, um, you know, that's really good. Even 95% is a rare cure rate when you have it published in peer-reviewed uh, literature. That's exactly right. Yep. And it's not, it's not diminishing our specialty. It's just making sure the patients understand. It's set their, setting their expectations. And then um, the second thing I want to talk about was that one of the unique aspects of this database, the LexisNexis database, is it involves federal cases where the federal government is a defendant. And you might ask, like, where, when is the federal government a defendant in healthcare? 
Well, this would be in any case involving prisons or prisoner prisoners, uh, any case involving the VA or any case involving military hospitals. So we're, we've been looking at this database to investigate uh, the characteristics of litigation involving prisoners who present with dermatologic concerns. We know that prisoners have are less likely to be less likely to see a dermatologist and are less likely to be referred to a dermatologist for their dermatologic conditions. So we're trying to kind of tease that apart with the database and see if we can figure out where some of where some of the disparities for healthcare amongst the prisoner population are coming from. Yeah, I um, I noted that when I was reading the article and. Um, I, I think probably in our world, the biggest overlap would be the VA, which I think, uh, from what I remember in your article, was a relatively low contributor, but certainly uh, claims within the prison system were, were, I think, an impressive 20-something percent of all the claims you guys uh, encountered. So um, kudos to making that a topic of research in the future. With that, I really want to thank you, uh, Jeff, so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I, uh, I want to thank our listeners for their attention. Um, I know we've had a little holiday from the podcast over the summer, but we're back in full swing with a number of uh, excellent speakers on a variety of topics lined up. The articles that we discussed today will be included in the Mose College Reference Library, which is accessible through the ACMS website. And again, to all of our listeners, uh, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Please give us feedback, be it through email, be it through the various download portals and let us know how we're doing and if there's anybody in particular you'd like to have uh, come on the show you can email us by uh, sending a message to info at thank you and i hope you'll join me next time on conversations in most surgery <laughs>